Oh boy, what a tough time to be an optimist about anything. In our tumultuous times, from Ukraine to inflation to collapsing stock markets, it's hard to tease out of all that chaos what the future might look like, especially for investors. So in this edition of The Last Optimist, we're joined by John Malden, who is a renowned financial expert, a New York Times bestselling author, a pioneer, in fact, in the early days of online commentary and has a huge uh, online audience now, as well as for his newsletter. John is not just an investment manager, but a keen observer and analyst of the realities of Wall Street, global markets, and economic history. I welcome the storied, brilliant, <laughs> and fun uh, John Malden to uh, to the podcast, which everyone knows uh, is an, maintains the position of being optimistic in the face of pessimistic chaos, as the uh, quote last optimist. John, great, great to have you uh, join me. Thank you for coming, Mark. I'm flattered that uh, you've asked me. I'm happy to be here. And, uh, Maybe not. You might not be when we're done, but you can tell me that after. <laughs> Just kidding. You, John, you wrote a really uh, good piece out, which I'll link to because it's public. You know, I think it's public domain. Your latest uh, newsletter, "Rock in a Hard Place." Just I commend the people. And as I said, I'll link it at at the site. Uh, you started out with an observation that I made in my book too, but yours was specific to our very specific year and time we're living. Mine was sort of specific to the couple of years we live in, is that we live in, uh, and you worded it, we're stuck in an awkward interregnum. Uh, right. Which which I agree. Uh, but let me, let's start with what you mean by the interregnum right now. And then I'll, and I'll tell you what I think I mean by it, but go ahead. I hate to even use the word transition because it has the root word transitory. <laughs> <laughs> But, but we are um, in this state where we have to go from high inflation and somehow or another, we're going to have to get to low inflation. And that doesn't happen without, generally, as we've observed, without some level of pain. And at least slower growth is going to uh, impact earnings. Um, and, and by the way, it's not just the U.S. Uh, this is uh, inflation everywhere in the world now. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, we have this really awkward interregnum of uh, supply chains yep. being compounded by China and their lockdowns. Yep. Um, I mean, they want to pursue it that way. That's their choice. <laughs> but it's impacting the rest of the world pretty significantly. Yeah. Um, we have this um, terrible situation in, in uh, Ukraine uh, that is going to impact for some time the ability of the world to feed itself until we restructure and you know yeah. reorganize. Uh, it's certainly going to restructure how we think about energy and where we're going to get it. I mean, it, it's it's just one transition item after another, and they're all there together. And it's, it becomes the, the, the compounding of it is, you know, 
uses that that brings to the word to mind uh, awkward. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just awkward. I mean, there's I mean, you can't you, you can't focus on one thing. You're focus having to focus on you know four or five balls that are juggling in the air. Yeah, and, and, and very few of us can juggle one ball, let alone five. Yeah, exactly. In fact, your 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 interregnum observation aligns with what I put in the introduction of my my book, which I, uh, as you know, continue to promote because it's a new book. That's what you do. You, as a storied, successful New York Times bestselling author, know that well. <laughs> you you when you get a book, you you're out there pumping it every day. <laughs> you got to, you got to. But the interregnum is uh, also in my mind, the other factor, you know, I, I've talked about, we'll come back to this, I think, in a little bit, of course, is the idea of the other use of the word transition is this, and uh, everyone knows my bias is fiction, but the fiction of an energy transition as creating other uh, problems, inflationary pressures, supply chain pressures based on government policies. When you add that, which the Europeans are discovering to the calculus of what do you do? How do we navigate? That's just another transition exactly. uh, that I didn't list in my list, but I, I, I clearly should have. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, um, it, it is a transition, uh, transition fiction. Um, I mean, will we at some point in the future have a relatively carbon-free uh, environment. Yes, 30, 40 years, whenever we've got the fusion thing down, uh, you know, there's, there's tech, technology is going to come in. We yeah. will get it done. Yeah. You know, even just so everybody knows, I, the only air, I don't want to see the air I breathe. And, and I, the only thing I want in my water is scotch. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm as much of an environmentalist as anybody, but at the same time, I need, Electricity to power my house, my you know my computers, my refrigerators. My wife has to have electricity. You know that we all do <laughs> exactly. So. And you want it cheap and reliable. That's the, the yeah. overriding metric. But the you know we could we could have a debate, and I have many times about because we don't know forty years from now what technologies mature or emerge that we don't we haven't invented yet, which would include fusion. But the the fiction that you and I agree on is the idea that what we're using today, it can affect a transition away from hydrocarbons because it, it because it hasn't and it won't. But the force of policies attempting to make that happen artificially are inflationary and destructive to supply chains, obviously. But let's let's come back to the bigger question. I want before we get into, into the energy transition and its implications for investors. Uh, like you and I and everybody who's an equities investor, but they don't have to be a private investor, but equity, equities investors are care about this too, as, as, as do the majority of people's 401ks and retirement funds. But you, you started with something. I'm going I'm to go back to the high level thing because it's something that I've written about, I've thought about, argued about for years. You put your finger on something and you were, quote, you were quoting uh, someone that you said was your favorite chief, chief economist, Bill, Bill White. Who, uh, of yes. course, I'm I'm proud that you uh, denoted a Canadian. Myself being a Canadian is one of, is one of the top economists. But he's uh, he, he said something, that, and then you emphasized that 
is, is important for forecasting, whether it's an investment forecast or policy making, but particularly important for the domain of governments thinking they can manage the economy or micromanage the economy. And he said, and you repeated that, the central banks are, quote, overconfident in their own ability to control the economy. And that this, you know, you label this as a profound ontological or philosophical error because they don't understand the systems. They, it's a, or put, put in simple language, right? It's a, it's a fundamental error to think you can manage the complexities of an economy that's resilient and adaptive. Boy, I, that is such an important point that people, bankers, politicians, we all know why they, they want to pretend they can manage. But th- this, this, is, uh, this lies at the core of the chaos, right? We create chaos by trying to fix something when we actually make it worth, worse frequently. Sometimes it microfixes do things, but. Well, it's magical thinking. Um, my, my favorite phrase, as you know, <laughs> the the, uh, the 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 hubris. Yeah, now, can the Federal Reserve affect the economy? Damn, Skippy, it sure can. <laughs> you know, as it has demonstrated over it, and over it, again. As, as you know, so can the U.S. government. So so can any government can affect their economy. They can run deficits. Um, they can create policies that are either benign and or helpful or hurt, harmful. So um, they, they can have an effect, but the fact that they think you can manage an economy is just is, is ludicrous. The, the, the best thing you can do in my humble opinion, is to become as benign as possible and to allow individual entrepreneurs and citizens to figure out how to improve their own lives. And sometimes you get some really amazing things happen. I mean, you get, (laughs) you get, you know, uh, people that create the automobile and and televisions and, uh, Smartphones uh, and and bio and, and disease resistant crops and all kinds of stuff happens. It just it's just amazing what happens when you get out of the way. Yeah, uh, and when you give them the freedom to uh, change and the and the incentive of making money from their new idea from their new project, whether it's a Mexican restaurant, uh, <laughs> you know, or. Um, um, Food delivery service uh, or, 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 right. or, or Elon Musk making uh, yeah. a, 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 a really good um, uh, electric vehicle, um, or, or, or even better, uh, space-based internet that has got the Russians very nervous. Well, I mean, I, I just I find him a fascinating. I'd love to spend some time with him. What? When you? When? I never. I'll, I'll very <laughs> unlikely I'll ever get that chance. But for somebody to go from electric vehicles to actually landing a rocket, I mean, like not crashing it, but landing it yep. on on and, and to, to watch that moment. And, and if you don't if you don't have a little bit of a tear in your eye, you're not a human. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, and, it was and then, and then with what he's doing with Starlink. I know. Um, 
I mean, um, what Bezos is doing with with some of his stuff. I mean, yeah. these these guys are doing amazing uh, technological uh, great leap forwards. Um, it's 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 makes you proud to be human. I agree. Uh, I agree. No, I, I live I live in Puerto Rico, and if I could just if the Puerto Ricans would just get out of the way, we could actually uh, believe it or not, we have the ideal. Um, uh, we're in an ideal part of the world. We have lots of empty land yeah. and lots of sun, and, yeah. and and we could create a lot of solar power here. But you just have to get all the unions and the governments and everybody who've already said they all want to do it, but nobody nobody's figured out how yet to. Uh, well, as you know, the, the way they want to do it in Puerto Rico is the way they want to do it in most places. Is they want to in effect dictate how it gets done as opposed to create conditions for entrepreneurs to do productive things, to put capital to work. It's a uh, prescriptive rather than uh, facilitated role. Well, but, I mean, the, the I pay probably four to at least four to five times what you're paying for electricity here. Yep. Um, and so that's what makes solar uh, so ideal is in that uh, we could have put, put uh, solar energy in, sell it at really good margins, and people would save twenty five percent and they'd be happy. Oh, it's a, it's it's the uh, the, the latitude uh, dictates solar's efficacy, and meanwhile Germany, which at its latitude, uh, its capital efficacy of a solar array in Germany compared to Puerto Rico is literally one third the capital efficacy. So it's three oh, yeah. times the price. But back to your point about the pride of Elon Musk. And I, by the way, I share your, your sentiments about the amazing accomplishments of people like him and Bezos and others. But also for me, Elon Musk in particular, because he took on essentially hardware tasks, which most tech titans don't do. Building cars, building spaceships, building solar arrays, building batteries. These are very difficult things to do compared to delivering uh, a platform to you know, disintermediate financial transactions. The latter is hard, but it's, a, it's a no understatement to say it's harder to build rockets. That's a physical tasks are astonishing. Incidentally, it's a matter of relevant technological history. The engines and technology to do a landing the way we imagined them in science fiction of our youth, landing a rocket on its tail, those engines and the first such landings were done in the 1950s. And the engines that uh, were used by Elon Musk are directly derivative from the same engines that Rolls-Royce built for the space program in the 50s. And the revolution wasn't so much recent in the engines but like so much else in the software and control systems and then having an entrepreneur with the moxie and capacity to put it all together to, to achieve that feat. Right. Which, which of course is, I think the point you were making is very much a Hayekian or Adam Smith point about how markets function. Markets like to have, you know, you need, you need guardrails that have to do with um, reasonable regulations about uh, contract law, the ownership of property, I mean, all the things that are that are obvious that that provide the sort of framework that entrepreneurs can and, and 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 you really you actually have to have laws about you know not dumping um, chemicals into rivers and, exactly. and you know, exactly. all all of you know all of the things that uh, 
people will do if it's if you know if it's not their uh, responsibility uh, to clean up and uh, you know it's the the tyranny of the common grounds um, yeah. but that's that that's what we come together for as governments uh, and we've there there are at times when governments get a little bit zealous overzealous <laughs> and want to do do more for us more for us than uh, it might be for our own good well as you know what's happened with the common agreement this is the debate which takes one into every domain especially in for investors these days there's the the great uh, quote ESG movement which everybody listening doubtless knows is environment social governance metrics that no one disagrees that when we invest in companies, whether we're a government trying to provide frameworks for regulation, that it's a good idea to be environmental stewards. Don't put uh, toxic chemicals in the water. Uh, you know, pay attention to your social contract with the community that you're that you have a, a factory in. You know, treat your employees well. The governance size. All, all these things are normal. But what's happened is the slippery slope of the perversion. I would think in my words at least, of ESG into now being totally captive by almost only one metric. If you look at what's going on now, it's been captured by the climate movement to mean that if you have anything to do with oil, gas, and coal, anything to do with hydrocarbons and emitting carbon dioxide, you're, you're now effectively punished either from access to capital, which the EU has done. People propose that we do the same thing here. I don't think it'll happen here, but it's a... Uh, it is a, uh, a migration from the original goals we all agree on, clean air, clean water, to this new magic. Well, I, I call it a religion. Yeah, well. I mean, I, I actually went to seminary and studied this stuff, you know, and it has all of the functions of a religion. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's got a creed. It's, it's, you have faith. There's no... Um, I mean, they, they have this belief that somehow or another uh, uh, solar panels and uh, wind farms are just going to magically appear in somebody else's neighborhood, somebody else's backyard, um, and uh, not realizing how much cobalt it takes to produce those uh, uh, panels, how much copper and steel and iron it takes I mean, we're, we're talking about, it's not an order of magnitude, but it's, it's a lot more than we've, we've already mined already. Exactly. Nobody wants to say, well, let's, let's, go start, let's go start mining, you know, here or there. It's always, well, let's mine someplace else, but let's get oh. it. And, and it, we're talking, you know, some, you know, billions of, uh, I mean, uh, pounds, ton, tons of uh, millions of tons of copper. Uh, and yep. it just doesn't magically show up. I mean, it's it's not in it's not in uh, convenient places anymore. <laughs> well, well, it's actually the only the only thing I, I would beg to differ on is that actually is a convenient places. But there are places that we uh, don't want to mine because this this administration and previous ones have serially made it impossible 
to expand copper mining. There's been a, uh, this administration refused to permit to expand a Minnesota copper mine in, in Minnesota. Minnesota is not a very far away place. Uh, you have the same problem everywhere in the continental United States. You don't have to go to Alaska. It's a serial opposition to, if not outright banning to, banning of mining expansion in the continent of the United, in the, in the continental United States. Uh, the, the thing that uh, I would say that you and I are on the same page, on this resource challenge, which of course is part of the magical thinking. And as it happens, some of the mineral requirements are an order of magnitude greater than we now mine. In fact, the, the it's really quite remarkable. You, the, the copper demand is only about 300% more than the amount of copper the world mines. So this is a world, as you well know, where increases in demand of a few percentage points send prices up. And if you, and if you increase to 30%, you'd have a hard time uh, expanding mines fast enough globally. But the um, the copper demand, which is the oldest mined mineral in the in civilization, predates predates written history, is off the charts high to, to fuel these transition dreams. Aluminum demand, which most people haven't focused on and haven't put into the critical energy minerals bucket, it belongs there because the extra aluminum needed to put a half ton battery to replace a hundred pound gasoline tank. The extra aluminum is what automakers put in to offset that half ton penalty. And of course, aluminum demand is driven by these uh, subsidies and aspirations to accelerate uh, electric cars. And of course, aluminum for long distance transmission lines. So we're, we're on a, um, we're in a, uh, in a zone, this interregnum where policymakers are doing things that they aren't aware, I don't think, are actually fueling the inflation they think they want to get rid of. Well, the it, it was we had we we were very fortunate to be able to get Glencore, which is you know one of the largest commodity traders in the world, yep. to allow one of their uh, experts, the guy, this this young gen, young I call him a kid, he's probably forty. Uh, to show you how old I am. It's, it's but, all relative, John. It's all relative, right? Yeah, it, but um, he controls 40% of the copper trading in the world from his desk. And 30% uh, of the Glencore mines itself uh, yep. and buys. Um, and he, and, and there was one other guy that was on, on the panel with him that was, they were talking energy, and, and he says, "He says you just don't understand how much more cobalt it's going to require us to mine, find and mine. Uh, the bulk of it comes out of a few mines in Africa. Yeah. Um, and um, now the good thing about cobalt in batteries is that when you return your battery, because you'll eventually return to your car battery, yeah, sure, you, yeah. you can." get the cobalt out of it. The cobalt doesn't go away. No, uh, the, the atoms, for, except for nuclear fission and fusion, which one day the atoms exist essentially forever. It's just the question of how easy or hard it is economically to recover them. Yeah, it's an easy, it's a, but he's well, right. It's, it's, it, it's, it'll be cheaper to recover it from a battery than it will from a mine in Africa. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Although here's the problem with the recycling piece is, and as I'm sure he knows as a, as a trader in minerals, the rate of increase of demand uh, that would would come if we actually do the plans governments propose for the next 20 years, the rate of increase in demand for the minerals is so great. Again, order of magnitude for five or six minerals, 500% for others, 
that growth rate, even if you recycled perfectly 100% of the trailing things that are broken and old and exhausted, wouldn't come close to meeting 10% of the demand going forward. No, no. And, and what he made the, uh, the point of, he says, most people are thinking that the more you're, something you're willing to buy, the lower the price should be. Okay. Uh, yeah. He says, that's, not, <laughs> that's not the way it works for, for things like copper and cobalt no, and other things no. like that. The price is just going to go up. They, um, you know, that's, this, is the, this is the myth. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote about a paper I found. You may have seen it. I missed it. At the end of the last year, the International Monetary Fund Economists put out a paper looking at just one issue. They didn't make a judgment call on the energy transmission transition plans. They just took on faith that governments will continue to try to do it. And they wanted to analyze the inflationary effect on minerals from those plans, to your point, because higher prices for copper eventually stimulate more supply, of course, but it's a long cycle. Mines take years, enough decades to open. Miners are reluctant to spend, oh, let's say $10 billion on a new mine, where on the basis of the government wanting your copper five, 10 years from now, after the inflationary pressures punish everybody. So they're reluctant. So there is no mining expansion of any significance. But anyway, the IMF paper reached a conclusion, which I thought was tectonic. They, they wrote, looking back to data going back for a century, that the current inflationary pressures on minerals will lead to systemic inflation and mineral inflation, specifically mineral inflation, for a decade or more at, at historically high levels. I mean, this, this is a pretty important piece of economic analysis that everyone seems to be ignoring. Well, I mean, we're going to see inflationary pressures. Now, now, fortunately, the inflationary pressure of metals in the overall economy isn't that great. Um, but we've still got to get our energy, our food, our supply chains, and the Federal Reserve is going to have to um, raise rates, I think, far higher and longer yeah. than 90% of the people that are watching think. If they don't, inflation is going to get really bad. Yeah. And, and um, uh, Jerome Powell becomes Arthur Burns. Uh, I think Jerome Powell would like to go down as Paul Volcker. Um, he's personally rich. He's got his chairmanship. And, you know, he can leave after four years. And, you know, four years later, everybody will say, you did a good job, Jerome. You, you got rid of inflation. But if you don't, if you do not drive a stake in the heart of inflation, um, it becomes a very difficult macroeconomic environment. It does. And, and for those of us who remember the 70s, <laughs> it's not a good environment for stocks. It's not a good environment for earnings. It's not a good environment for employment. Um, I, I mean, it's not a good environment for retirement. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's, uh, it, which is why I really hope that Powell has, has the, um, uh, fortitude to stay the course. I do too. And I think th th this is the part that's, that's worrisome. I think your comment, uh, by the way, that the minerals don't constitute 
a, you know, a dominant force in, in our economies. That Obviously, that's true. This has been one of the achievements of technology and change of markets is that we're, we have economies that are driven by a lot, of, a lot more uh, forces and factors and technologies than just the raw costs of minerals and food and fuel. However, I, I, I will tell you, uh, back to this, the inflationary potential of what the energy transition plans are doing, let's just take aluminum. This is another paper I found from the USGS economists who have been, as you know, they've been, they've been mineral inflation trackers for a long time, geological survey. The aluminum prices and mineral prices by and large constitute a small share of inputs to most manufacturing. But if you triple aluminum prices, which is what's happened, that, that cost increase, the bill of materials for, and they gave one example for heavy equipment manufacturers, actually wipes out all the profit margins for all the heavy equipment manufacturers. Their, their, their net margins are equal to the bill of material increase from aluminum at its current price. So obviously you raise a price to the truck or whatever it is, but right. that mineral becomes inflationary when you see the to the broader market when you move prices as much as they're now moving. Well, and, and, and that is true. And the cost of transportation, exactly. i.e. diesel fuel. Yep. Um, and, and believe me, I've noticed the price in, in rise in diesel fuel. Uh, in Puerto Rico, one of the things that is pretty much standard uh, for most homes. I, I don't know any of my neighbors that don't in, in my neighborhood. We all have diesel generators. Of course, backup of course. Because our electricity goes out once a week. Yeah. Uh, and it can go out for five minutes or for a day. Yeah. And so, and so um, I just had to buy a new diesel generator and fill it up with diesel. <laughs> and it was, oh my God, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, I had a, had a, young friend of mine um, the other day that's got one of these big, you know, Ford F-350 because he does construction work. Yeah. And he says it took $200 to yeah. fill his uh, truck up. I mean, that's, that's, um, that shows up. It absolutely does. In fact, you know, the natural gas, the inflation of natural gas in the last six months pre-Ukraine, it actually accounts for more than half of the wheat inflation. The other is from taking some supply off the market, but the increase in, in fertilizer costs, which is 80% dominated by the cost of natural gas, uh, was high enough to drive most, most of, not all the weight inflation. Then, of course, the fear of supply loss from Ukraine, it was a the catalyst, look it up more. But as you know, I mean, back to the minerals, the, the mining industry is a, uses more, more energy than the global aviation industry. Uh, oil is a dominant form of fuel in mining for the same reason that you use oil in Puerto Rico. It's remote location. Oil is easy to store and move. It's what moves the big trucks. It's what makes electricity at most mines. And the energy costs are one of the biggest bill of material inputs for mining. And when energy was cheap, you know, the minerals are produced relatively inexpensively. Uh, but when it gets, I mean, we're, we're at two to 300% inflation over where diesel was when we were during the halcyon days of, of cheap, cheap oil. Uh, the, these are, but here's, well, here's and, my- and with, with natural gas being 
I think it touched nine dollars last week. It's still yep. at eight. I haven't looked yep. at it today. Yep. Uh, I, I I never in my life when I grew up, I, I literally grew up in the gas patch uh, I, uh, in Wise County, where the the predecessor to, to Mitchell Energy, Christie yep. Mitchell, and Mitchell Old Man Christie funded these two young A and M graduates yep. to go out and punch holes in the ground in Wise County. I think you know they got oil and I mean I mean gas and they yep. ship it up to Continental. But never in my life, because I've watched it all my life, having lived in Texas, I never thought we'd see $8 gas. I mean, yeah. I've, got, I've got friends of mine that are smiling every month when of they course. get their checks. If you're the producer or the royalty holder, you're a happy camper right now. Um, it's um, Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I was in Dallas last week. I was just simply, I'm simply looking at, uh, I think, the ESG movement is not going to go away. Yep. Not. That's, that's one of the hallmarks of a religion. Yep. And they're, they're handing investors an opportunity. And I, I don't want to buy Exxon or Pioneer or Devon or any of those companies. Not that, that they're bad that, companies. That, that are not, they're, they're wonderful companies. And I think I think their share. The, I think the I think the share of energy and the S and P is going to go from four percent to eight yeah. percent. I mean, it's 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 we're we're going to see that full turn. But I want to actually own the oil and the gas in the ground. I want the royalties. I don't I want, blame. I want to I want to own the fields and I want to see those as those fields grow. You you can actually. These days, it's because we drill so much in the U.S. Yeah, you can find old oil fields where they drill vertical wells, and you yeah. know you you know exactly what level the gas is at. Yeah. You yeah. know where it's at. All you have to do is go down and drill a, a horizontal well, send it out, frack it. You're going to you know, and you're going to uh, bring these fields back to life. You can rent that old uh, oil field. You can release it. You can get it. Uh, Relatively, the word it's it's all relative, okay. Of course, but it it's relatively cheaply, yeah. And you can increase the value of the field, and that's where the real value is because you yep. can make if, if you do this for three or four years, all of a sudden that field that you paid thousand an acre for, five hundred acre, or whatever, whatever, is now worth five to eight times more than it was when you bought it, yeah. And that's worth more than the royalty stream, and. Um, normally operators don't give that piece of the juice to the investors. Uh, and, and I, and that's, that's what I want to see. That's what I want to see happen. Wow. Uh, I've never done it, never done a fun, a fun like that. Um, I've watched other guys drill and I've got lots of friends that are operators. Um, likewise, likewise, but, you know, uh, but it's, 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 they're just, if the ESG movement keeps on the way they're going, I don't think $110 oil is going to be seen as outrageous no, two years from it, now. It, unfortunately, it could become, you know how oil prices work. They oscillate around a new norm, which is we've had reset resets from 72, 73 on where you get these oscillations around a new a new median price as markets react and 
people react. I, I think you're right. I mean, my suspicion is between the ESG movement and the, uh, we'll call it uh, general hostility to supporting oil and gas businesses in many in Europe. Well, and, 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 and sometimes it's just the shareholders having been traumatized by you sure. know, 2015, 2016, saying, we want dividends. Exactly. We want buybacks. Sure. You know, it, return us the, the money. Capital. Stop, stop yeah. going out and taking every bit of the money and drilling. Um, which, frankly, if I'm a shareholder of a public company, I, that's what I want to see. Well, it makes sense. Um, so you're describing a bifurcated market, which is sort of what we see in the friends of mine in the oil patch, gas patch that I talk to, is that the we'll call it the publicly traded companies, the public equities, because of this, the we'll call it the political environment, ESG and the rest, the economies, as you and I both know, and people are now rediscovering, economies cannot delink from oil and gas. It's just not, it's not, there's no delinking going on. It's not happening. Russia's making it harder. So why, why wouldn't you return uh, pro- profits and capital to your investors rather than, so that's what's happening, whether it's in the form of share buybacks, which re- is a form of return of profit because if you're a shareholder or, or dividends, but that means that the the drilling for new production, which the world will need, especially trying to deal from Russia, will go to the private markets where people uh, are looking for the metrics you describe. I'm not looking for a royalty return in a sense. I'm not looking for you to send me a dividend check. I want to get the upside value of the fundamental asset. And I think we'll see, people have been saying, remember the 08 crash, then the 14 crash, then the 2020 crash. So if you're you're in the oil business, you've, you've experienced three price crashes in, in the shortest time period, probably in the modern oil history. It's traumatized people. Um, I, I, in that, there's, I think like, like you, there's profound opportunity because the world's not gonna avoid needing that fuel. And the only marginal supplier of significance other than the United States is OPEC. I mean, it's, Russia is not gonna be the marginal supplier of significance. And so well, I, I, I think Russia, and, I, and I've talked with people about this, and, and, and you may be the person to know it more than I do. Maybe you can tell me the answer. But I, I've, I've, asked, I've asked my oil and gas guys in Texas, I says, if Schlumberger and Halliburton decided one day that they didn't want to do business in Texas, how long would Texas be producing oil? I mean, it, at what point does our uh, production decline? And they just they all laughed and said, "You know, it. You know, it's it's not it's not long. It's not a matter of years." Oh, yeah, uh, I think her use that so the, the triumvirate, the big three. Uh, you so as you know, and this is where the mythologies come in. The oil and gas business is a profoundly technological business with extraordinary dependence, not just on technology, but domain expertise and history and experience, which it's a difficult business. Business, Companies like the big three and the smaller ones that are in their penumbra bring a domain capability that makes it possible. That's where the oil and gas comes from. The the beneficial owners have the property, but they don't drill. They they order, as you know, a a subcontract. You get people like Schlumberger and others, you know, uh, neighbors, whatever the firm is to drill for you. 
And that expertise is what makes it possible. And a point where you're going, of course, is as those companies, the global companies, the big dogs, don't do that work in Russia because of the obvious reason. Well, they pulled out. So, I mean, I'm just wondering how long is it going to be before Russia is, is um, um, you know, capable of producing, which is why I think they're still sending gas to Europe, even though Europe is funding Ukraine, because they they know there's a time coming. If they can't figure out how to get those sanctions lifted and get Slumberjay and Halliburton back. Yep, they're toast. Um, and I, I mean, it, 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 it's just mind boggling to me that somebody hasn't, you know, walked into Putin and said, here's our problem. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what the future looks like. Um, Well, don't you think it's a bit of a game of blink? So I think he knows that because I don't think he's stupid. Whatever he is, he's not stupid. He knows what these firms have done and made it possible to do. My, my, this is my theory. My theory is he's doing two things. One is it's the classic game of chicken. They, Europe cannot do without the oil and gas. It's 40% right. of their gas. It's literally a lights out event if the pipes are shut down. Europe goes black. They can't keep the lights on. Their economy goes into a, the biggest depression in, in, uh, in modern history. So they, that's why they're paying for it in rubles or gold. They'll do whatever they have to do. He wants to pop. So it's a game of chicken. Meantime, he's going to China and saying to Sinook and the, the big China oil companies, who are capable oil service companies, and saying, what can you do for me? They can do something, right? They're not, they're not incapable. But the fact that China is a net importer of oil and gas and uses our firms and our services, especially in deep water and complicated fields, it tells you something about China. China could not, in my opinion, replace the technological capacities of the big three of the West that work in Russia. So he knows that too. He's learned that. He's probably asked the question. So it's a game of chicken between the two counterparties, which you know what games of chicken are like when it comes to uh, these things. They, you know, people make miscalculations, and it's 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 high enough risk that. I'm 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 going to try to uh, the paper I'm writing now, which I'll, I'll share with you, John. I'd be interested in your opinions before I publish it for Manhattan Institute. Is I this I'm labeling this the third great uh, energy shock of the post-war era. There were two up until now: the 72, 73 oil embargo, the 79 Iranian Revolution. Those two were political events. Those two took off markets quantities of oil equal to the quantity of oil at, at risk today. But this one involves a quantity of gas equal to the quantity of oil. So its potential threat economically is double the last two oil shocks, both of which on their own caused recessions and tripled oil prices. And it's with a nuclear armed state like the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is, this is serious stuff. Ian Bremer, I was reading this morning, was writing from uh, uh, his, his thoughts from Davos. Um, and he said 75% of the executives there felt that we would have a global recession within 12 months. And a lot of that's going to be on energy and food. 
and and the energy food link is inextricable. You can't right. you can't delink them. The right. idea that we can use hydrogen, wind, solar, magical thinking to to solve that problem, of course, is itself inflationary and profoundly. So I want to come back though to to um, to your thoughts about the oil patch because one of the themes that I'm peddling that I think is um, is beneficial to somebody in the category of what you're thinking of is that the, the the technological advances that are now maturing in the industrial domains, you know, analytics tools, sensor tools, automation, all the toolkit that has been very difficult to put in industrial domains are now going into industrial domains, especially oil and gas. So all those talk about adding efficiencies from so-called digitalization of oil and gas, they're now happening. Uh, they, right. They haven't been deployed because it's hard and it takes a risk. It's always it's new. It takes a risk. But in this environment, with prices where they are in the absence of sufficient labor, I, I think I'll, I'll be the optimist. This is incredibly uh, incredible opportunity to really juice up the productivity of America's oil and gas fields. Well, I mean, they were already getting to the place where they're there. We're, we're not quite down to thirty dollar. Uh, lift costs, but <laughs> we're getting close. Um, the uh, especially if you're drilling in proven fields, it's it's a lot easier. Your your risk is a lot less. Um, but even just on regular wells, um, you're actually you've got cameras at the wellhead, at the drill bit head, um, where where the geologist is watching what's going on, can see the oil. Uh, I mean the the the, the amount of uh, new companies that are using um, different technologies to scope fields out. It's it's really. I mean, the the amount of technology that we use to frack. Yep. I mean, is it's it's scaling so fast, um, and and we're used to we're used to like phones. We we went from our bricks, you know, to to. I mean, when you think about it, we went from bricks to a, to an iPhone in something like fifteen, sixteen years. I yeah. mean, you know, um, and but. That's what's happened in the oil patch. I mean, they've gone from using bricks <laughs> to, to uh, you know, uh, small, you know, that, that same level of development. And that's what's driving the cost of uh, yeah. drilling down. Um, and and it's, an, it's increasing the production per well. Um, and it, it's not just the oil business. It's, Automobiles, it's yep. manufacturing, the whole it's, industrial sector. It's, yeah. it's it's in in just one industry after another. Um, you know the the uh, I mean, just what uh, uh, what Amazon does to deliver packages. Um, I've been in, um, and and I'm sure nearly everybody that's listening has ordered something from Uline uh, uh, Productions. And, you know, you, you get your boxes, your packing yep. tape, yep. your yep. your supplies. I've, they've got, I believe now, 
it's either eight or 12, one million square feet warehouses around the country. Yep. And they're all the same. You can all eat off the floor. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it, and, and they're full of robots. Uh, it, it's well, it's full of robots, but it's full of people. Yep, both of them. Exactly. That um, I mean, you order something, and if it gets in by like you know ten or eleven in the morning, it's shipped out that day. I know. I mean, it's I it's incredible. There's no more. You know, okay, we're gonna get the order. It's a piece of paper. It goes here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's 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 you know. And that's just all that is is picking something up off a shelf and putting it into a box and, and mailing it. It's a simple process, but to do that a million times and do it in a few hours. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, and I asked, I've asked uh, uh, Dick and some Joel and some of the other guys running. Said, Aren't you guys worried about Amazon? And they said Amazon will never be able to cut our costs. They can't. They can't compete with us. Exactly. I mean, it, well, for it, those it, who, you know, for those listening, um, they will think that I uh, coached or paid you in advance to say what you just said because it's the thesis uh, of my book, The Cloud Revolution, the core, the core thesis, and and of course the theme of the venture fund that I'm. Uh, or PE fund, it's not really a venture fund, it's an early stage growth equity fund. The theme of our investment fund in the oil and gas fields is exactly what you described. We can take the transcript and use it as our, our pitch deck because we're, we're making the case that the explosion in both small companies, we're focused on small, and big companies deploying digital technologies is no longer aspirational. It's real, it's accelerating, it's productive, it's economically viable now. And it's the essence of the revolution and the what I what I would call shale 3 You know, shale 1 is your your friend Mitchell who figured out that we could do it. And then shale 2 happened after the 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 beating up from uh, the 2014 price collapse. And now 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 that we understand how to make oil and gas appear from shale rock, we've got all this experience. You now layer on these digital technology capabilities, automation, software that the rising generation of, of workers are very comfortable with. I think, you know, we think that our, our, our little fund is incendiary and the opportunities lie at the two ends of the spectrum. Operators can now count on asking for and seeing much greater efficiencies driving their costs down. And of course, investors like our fund, uh, so I'm biased, we think that there are outsized opportunities for growth stage companies to sell these services, obviously they they make money selling services, software services, and eventually they get bought by the the big dogs in the in the field. But it's it uh, we see the same thing as as you're describing at the sort of the front lines. The companies that we're invested in are selling these technologies every day, and what they would tell us, and I've heard this in these words from our our company CEOs or chief sales officers or technology officers. When they started this business, many of them, as you know, the overnight success, it takes 10 years. So 10 years ago, they started this business that they have. They go to a room with 10 or 20 engineers in it. And it was a very tough sales job because they, all the engineers, they could tell were thinking that software is going to replace me or the technicians. Whereas now they go to the same meetings, the same companies, and there's three people in the room because there aren't 10 engineers left anymore. And they're not thinking it's going to replace me. They're thinking, I need this stuff. 
because I can't find people to hire to amplify me. So it's the complete flip. It's, it's when I, I talk about the age of transformation a lot. Um, and one of the aspects of going into a transformational age, I mean, I, I, I have this kind of Chinese wall in my brain. I have, I'm, <laughs> I'm such an optimistic about, optimist about the future and then I'm bearish about governments and the Fed. <laughs> join, the club, join the club. It's called schizophrenia. The, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, when Isaac Newton said, you know, I, I am where I am because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's an inverse pyramid. I mean, you start with the the fired wheel down at the bottom, and yeah. then and then and then and then you know agriculture. But but the innovation chain moves up, and it speeds up because the more people that are innovating, the faster the innovation happens. And so you have this monster pyramid, flat. It's, it's if you looked at it you know, and get down close. It's very, very bumpy because some companies are rising faster than others, yeah. but some people are rising faster than others, but yeah. they're standing on the innovations of 50, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then they innovate, they change, they do something. All their competitors look around and go, well, damn, I need to do that, you know, and, <laughs> course, and um, either that or I'm going to be, either that or I'm going out of business. Yeah. Um, so it, it just keeps multiplying and, and transforming faster. And that's why you and I may disagree uh, on this. That's why I think Kathy Wood is very good at, um, finding new innovative technologies, finding new transformative yeah. technologies. Now, what she got caught up in is the same thing <laughs> George Gilder got caught up in in 2000. Yeah, and I know. I know do George. You, yeah. do you know George? So, I know George I mean, well. Uh, George was traumatized uh, by 2001 because he had just bought his newsletter from Ford. He, you know, it was a ended up being a disaster because nobody wanted to read his stuff after the tech stop. <laughs> and I, I remember talking with him and he said, but these are good companies. And I said, George, they're wonderful companies. They were just overpriced. Yep. They, they weren't good stocks. Well, listen, well, listen. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, Qualcomm is clearly a fabulously oh. transformative Powerful, incredible company. Incredible company. But what, but what, what uh, is it? What is it actually worth versus what it what it is? But you know, you. Uh, so you, John, what you've just said is what I've been trying to say to people. I'll, I'll be writing about it again too. I'm sure you will. When they say, "Look at tech stocks now," big correction. So okay, let's just, you know, that's the stock price versus what the company does. What its its worth is to the market versus what its worth is to investors, but let's look back to the 2000 crash and everybody said tech was dead. Gee, did we have anything new happen after 2000? Uh, we were done, right? There were no innovations. Well, obviously post 2000, people discovered Amazon, Tesla came into existence, the iPhone came along. We can go through list after list of things that happened since 2000 
built on, to your point, and you, you, you articulated it really in a nice, lucid way, this inverse pyramid of how technology works, how innovation yeah, and, works. And, 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 and human beings, being what they are, they get carried away with the mythology, with the mythos of the value of this transformative technology, and they bid it up. And yeah. then someday they look around and go, oops. Oops. And, oops. <laughs> and then you have and then you have a recession. That's right. And then the the I mean to 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 I mean I, I like Kathy. I really do. I, I think and, what she's doing, by the way, and, is amazing. I but but she she was a victim of her own success. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. I mean, in the sense of she found all these cool companies. She talked them up. Everybody got excited. That's right. And the prices went up too much. And the yep. prices were going up. And everybody says, oh, my God, I've got to get in. It's that fear of missing out. Yeah. Um, FOMO and, investing. Huh? FOMO investing. Fear of missing FOMO out investing. And, and um, <laughs> the, the, by the way, on a side note, I know uh, a portfolio of her 10 highest conviction stocks. It's in a private yeah. uh, setting. Um, people can find me and ask me if they wanted to. It's down a fraction of what her main fund was. We're gonna, there's going to be a day because, I mean, if you go on Twitter, uh, do you, I don't know, you do you Twitter a lot? I, 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 I'm stuck. I'm forced to Twitter and LinkedIn to pontificate and annoy people. Yep. So, I, I mean, I mean, with, when we when we see Pete Kathy Wood hatred, we're going to um, look up one day and go, "That's the time to go all in," <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and and we're we're not there yet. I mean, we I, haven't we haven't we haven't had a recession. Um, yeah. I mean, markets are going to. When when did markets bottom in two thousand and nine? At the bottom of the recession, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's there's a or or, or two thousand and two and one too. Yeah. I mean that you you got to have the recession. You got to get the bottom. Yeah. I, know. Uh, I don't I don't want anything to do with the stock market. Uh, um, I mean, uh, you know, my line is now: friends don't let friends buy. Uh, 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 index funds. Uh, <laughs> it's a good line. Well, you, you and I share the same view, by the way, Kathy. I think, and again, uh, promoting my book, the, the the thesis of my book maps very closely to Kathy Wood's thesis. I, I think my thesis is a little broader than hers because my view of technology is a little broader, but the essence of the thesis is exactly the same as the essence of her thesis. So it's a it's a technology map, not an investment map. So it's a look at where the economies are going, right. not where equities are going. Right. However, and I, you know, Tesla is the, is, is the perfect you know, icon of that example because he, the electric battery that he, his team invented, built, designed, he didn't invent the lithium battery, but until very recently, it was the best engineered automotive battery in the world. Making his car, he's not as good at, you know, his quality control is well known in the in the automotive world as being sort of two to three times higher recall rates than an than average GM or Toyota Corolla. But 
you know, it's a story car. Nobody cares. But, but he, I mean, it, it, come on. He can learn They've that. been doing it for 100 years. He's been doing oh, yeah, it. For, of course. Exactly. He'll, he'll, exactly. He'll figure those details out. I, I couldn't agree more. And the thing that he figured out that they came late to the party on is how to engineer the new thing, which is a, uh, a useful, effective, uh, high-quality automotive battery. So they're all trying to copy. They're catching up. They'll get there. But he's also done something very smart, as I'm sure you know. I've watched for years now as he has done what Ford did back a century ago, because he's because he had to then, Musk did now, is get involved in the vertical supply chains, co commitments for nickel, cobalt, uh, aluminum, all the things that the others are now scrambling to get, which he gets more easily at lower cost because he saw it coming. But back to the equities question, I, I share your view, which is again, why I think we're in the interregnum to, to, to sort of bring us back to where we started and where we should wrap up is the interregnum is painful because it's a recession and it probably gets worse. If you're an investor, the equities get cheaper. If you're an investor in the future, which I am. So you're sort of looking around, where can I put money to work? Okay, well, um, I share your views about some of the fundamentals on being in the in the oil and gas business. We think, I'm, again, I'm biased now, that some of the um, private tech plays who do software for oil and gas in, are good. I mean, we do in, in my my investment world. We do a lot of private. We do some private tech, mostly private biotech. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a monster biotech guy. Um, we have a a, a a seed company now called Cibus, C I B U S. Since we're no longer selling it because it's uh, <laughs> they've they've raised all the money they need, and at some point some very, very large Wall Street firm that everybody knows and loves um, or hates or whatever uh, is going to take them public. Yeah. Uh, so so they're not raising any more money. It's, uh, you can just, CIBUSC, but you can go look them up on the internet. They figured out a way to teach a seed to evolve. So they can teach a seed to evolve, to be uh, Roundup resistant, to be disease resistant, to be more productive. I mean, just right. they, turn, they, they can stack the these trades on. They can stack right. these trades on top of each other. Yep. And every time they put a new trade in, they get another twenty years of uh, intellectual property. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's it's, it's it's going to be one of the most valuable companies in the world in 10, 15 years. Um, I mean, that was we do stuff like that, and then we do a lot of private credit. A lot of you know yeah. high growing dividends. Right. Uh, I mean, just boring. Um, um, you know, very. It's, it's so boring to make money, John. That's really boring. <laughs> well, the, the the irony is that I asked my partner. We were in a dinner in Dallas because he was down looking with me, and I said because I, I, I should know these things, but I don't. I said, how how are we doing for this year? How is our average client? He says, well, we're up about two points. I mean, you know, so in, in a negative I figure, market, I figure, that's a, I figure that's a win for, for, for the, for the whole thing. So. I'd say so. If you got a market that's, I don't know what it is today. It well, is I mean, we're, we are, we, we have what we call core and explore, uh, 80% core, unless the older you get, the more core you have. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, and, and don't do as I say, don't, don't do as I do, do as I say, because <laughs> I have too much explore. And then the others that explore, it's the 
where you you're investing in the private companies and the biotechs, uh, um, and you know you're not looking for. I mean, our private credits we're looking for seven percent return, eight percent return. Um, I mean, and we're typically looking at smaller deals. I mean, you get a billion dollar deal, Apollo or Peterson or any of those big guys. They, they gobble them up. <laughs> they, they're just going to gobble them up. And, you're and the price goes and the price goes to four percent or five percent. Yeah. But, yeah. but you get you get a group that needs twenty five to fifty million. Yeah. Well, Apollo's not going to pay any attention to that. Exactly. And and you can get seven eight percent. You know, it's it's a um, and there's um, there's all sorts of those guys. And the interesting thing is, it used to be that regional banks did that. Yeah, but, that, but they got killed. And, and that got killed because the regulators won't let the regional banks take that type of I, risk. I, I, and I know. It, it's it's. I mean, here again, it's regulators it's you know whatever giving private now you got to be worth a million dollars you know all those things so the average you know person can't take advantage of it yeah. but if you're worth a million dollars or more you get you can get access to these funds um uh, and um you're not making great money it's it's a single it's not a, it's not even a double yeah but, uh, but you know full well that people People uh, today, if they're in a fund that's up two points in a market that's down twenty points, are doing high fives in the backyard barbecue on Memorial Weekend. It's it's a yeah great place to be. Well, it, it, bit- it 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 is, and it, it's it's not a fun, and it's it's depends on which you'd have to ask which client which day because yeah. some some clients take more risk, some oh, clients take less risk. Of course, um, but it's it's. When we, I started this iteration of my life um, with with a gentleman that I've been partnered with now, off and on in different deals for twenty years that I trust. Um, I just said I don't want to hold anybody's hand in a forty percent drawdown. <laughs> just, just I'm just not psychologically capable of doing that. Exactly. And, and so we we have, I mean, if you looked at our returns versus the average return of, you know, uh, everybody else for the last few, two or three, four years, we look boring. Why would you want that? <laughs> and well, we discovered I, that this year. Well, but the, to me, 8% compound over time is where I want to be. Yeah. And my explore bucket gives me that potential, you know, to the blue, blue sky, so called. To, to, to blue sky some, yeah. Yeah. To, 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 you know, uh, in, improve it. Um, but it, but it's, 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 I, I think. Especially today, investors need to be more risk averse than they have been for a very, very long time. Yeah, this is this is uh, 
sage advice uh, against, you know, you and I share optimism about the future where things can go, but to go through the transition we're in, not in energy, but in the economy and financial markets calls calls for a lot of caution. I couldn't agree more. Well, I mean, there, there, there's there's tons of places to put money to work. Oh, yeah. I mean, my portfolio, my problem with my portfolio right now is I don't have enough cash to put to work because <laughs> I've got too much of it at too much of it working. I'm trying to climb. I'm I'm fully invested. Okay, I'm not. No, you're fully invested carefully. This is the caution. Note. Well, that, mean- that, that is that is true. I mean, uh, I've got a large portion portion of my money in hedge funds, and everybody goes, "Oh my God, hedge funds!" No, we're talking millennium, Berisha, three. Yeah. I mean, boring multi-strat hedge funds, yeah. and. There's the group that I've had them with for a while. They've tracked them since 2014. And as of last year, at some point in last year, it averaged 9.2% a year for the entire time. Um, my worst year was down minus 0.2%. Wow. My best year was last year, and I won't tell you what it was because it'll <laughs> never happen again. <laughs> but, well, on that, but, on, that, on that note, we should... We should wrap. This is uh, yeah. It's been, but but it but it's it's there's there's ways people should get. There's things people can do. Exactly. There's there's no. I'm I am not a you know dig a hole and pull the, the tarp over your. It's yeah, just you're, no. You're and you're also not saying go to cash. Don't 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 invest. What you're saying is when you think where we started and where we're ending, is that it. We know we have uh, some uh, some challenges. We know we have some chaos. Some of the chaos has predictable outcomes, uh, pretty predictable outcomes. Nothing's perfectly predictable about all around which one can invest. I mean, that's what you do when times change. So we're, we're, but if you think about it from the viewpoint of the economy and the country, I think you like I are very optimistic about where we can end up, but we've got to go through this painful interregnum, which uh, uh, for investors, opportunity, cautious opportunity, for politicians, I think it's going to be incendiary because they're causing problems they can't control, even though I think they can, and it's going to bite they, them. They don't, they don't even understand what they're... No. Yeah, they, well, you, <laughs> we go, there's a rat hole we don't want to go down. That's true. <laughs> politicians that true. understand. That, that, that'll be the next podcast. We'll, we'll talk about that in terms of ed- educating the policy, which is, I said, as you know, I spent some of my life in that as in the Manhattan Institute. We talk about... You know, I write for policymakers, not not the politicians, but their staff and those kinds of things mainly. But also, and I've testified frequently before the Senate and the House and the Canadian Parliament, by the way, uh, recently on these minerals issues. So, uh, they, I would say, you and I both know many policymakers and politicians who are smart, and are good, do care. They exist. We just need to stiffen their spine and get there at the front of the line. Well, a lot of them. We expect too much out of our politicians. Well, it's probably, you, you, I mean, I mean, <laughs> the, the, that, that's why they have committees and they all focus yeah. on narrow things. Yeah. But yet when they come back to the district, we want to ask them questions on every little bit of policy I, and we expect them to know it, all know. of this stuff. And, and yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm a relatively well-informed human being. <laughs> so are you. 
we could not stand up there and answer the questions no, these you politicians get. What, what they're expected to know or control or say. But actually, this, this is a wise thing to say, by the way, in the middle of our, of our political chaos where we have so many people focused on what we'll call them the bad actors in the political space. Many of them, uh, to your point, is we expect too much from them, uh, given what's they're human. Like, let's let's be generous to those that aren't aren't crooks. There are crooks everywhere. Uh, they're they're humans. I can't know all these things. But I want to end on the lat where you began, on the in your letter, which again I'll link for people. The hubris to think, whether you're a politician or a policymaker, or expecting the politician or policymaker to control the economy, rather than right. Put guardrails around it. That's a formula for chaos, and that's uh, it's sort of why we're where we are in a way. I think that's what happened. So. Well, and with that note, Mark, it's been a wonderful hour. My God, hour and more. <laughs> this was a great conversation with John. I'm delighted you could join us, and I'm thrilled. You might imagine that your view, John's view, and I promise it was a independently arrived at. Believe it or not, that. He, his view of the future of the oil and gas market technology and the opportunity for investors aligns with our worldview. And uh, that's despite the fact that we're living through an annoying interregnum, but that's the nature of the beast. And if you enjoyed this podcast and our other podcasts, please uh, do me the favor of ranking them in the usual places. Send me questions, send me complaints. I can live with it. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Optimist.